Over half of American startups valued at $1 billion or more have at least one immigrant founder. When it comes to the Fortune 500, 40% were founded by either immigrants or the children of immigrants. What would happen to the U.S. economy if the country became a less attractive place for immigrants? What would happen to the tech industry as we know it today? This is Work in Progress. Keeping an American business alive. It's just not as easy anymore. I watch too much go wrong. There are not a lot of choices. We are hiring every single smart mind we can find, <laughs> and the U.S. just doesn't have enough of them. It certainly is a different America. There's opportunities here that yes. are untapped. It's you have to go get them. I'm just hoping that something will eventually crop up and get my life started. Welcome to LinkedIn's Work in Progress, a podcast on the future of the world of work. I'm your host, senior editor Caroline Fairchild, covering tech and startups for LinkedIn. And I'm LinkedIn managing editor Chip Cutter. I'm heading up a year-long reporting effort at LinkedIn where I'm traveling across the country to talk to people about what it means to work and earn a living now. And this week, Chip and I are talking about immigration, an issue that has dominated the news cycle since President Trump was elected. He's pushing for bans to limit travel from several predominantly Muslim countries, as well as restrictions to the H-1B policy, a key program that tech companies use to recruit talent from outside the U.S. A second federal appeals court recently ruled against President Trump's now-revised travel ban, and the issue looks like it's headed for the Supreme Court. So nothing's really been decided on this issue yet, but it hasn't curbed the passion that I'm hearing from folks around the country on this issue. These illegal immigrants weren't working these jobs, sending that money back to their country. Send them home. Our people Send would have home. these jobs. If they didn't work the jobs, they wouldn't get welfare benefits they either. Draw a line somewhere. That's right. I'm 100% with Trump on that. I don't care, man. Nah, Send them back. Send them back where they belong. That's Listen, right. enough's enough. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. So that was a really interesting moment for me. I was unprompted in a gas station on a Sunday afternoon in Ohio, about 45 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. Multiple people were willing to kind of openly air their thoughts on immigration. It was someone who was working at the store and then a customer who was coming in to pay. And they both, as you can hear, were pretty outspoken on this. And meanwhile, in Silicon Valley, tech leaders are almost unanimously shunning Trump and his immigration stances. The views could not be more different here. Nearly 100 tech companies, including Google, Facebook, LinkedIn parent Microsoft and Apple, have joined forces by filing an amicus brief against Trump's immigration policies. The point of this brief, they're saying that if they can't recruit immigrants from several countries, it's going to be harder for them to get the best talent in the door to make their tech companies grow. So we need to know if these policies do change, what will that mean for the broader economy? Our guest this week is the founder of a company that recently went public and is growing rapidly with more than 1,000 employees and a valuation of more than a billion dollars. He also happens to be an immigrant. Amr Awadallah, the founder and CTO of Cloudera, is originally from Egypt. He immigrated into the U.S. in 1995, right when Silicon Valley was becoming Silicon Valley. And in many ways, Amr embodies what the American dream can look like for immigrants coming to this country in search of opportunities. Amr, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Work in Progress. Thank you. So you are originally from Egypt. I left the country when I was a few months old. My dad was doing his PhD in Southampton in the United Kingdom. And then I spent the first five years of my life there. Uh, when I was five years old, I went back to Egypt and then spent 20 years in Egypt where I got my uh, bachelor's and uh, master's degrees from Cairo University. 
And then I came to the U.S. in 1995, so that's about 20 years ago. And you came to the U.S. to pursue further education, right? So my goal in life since I was a young boy was to be a professor, and that's why I came here, was to get my PhD from Stanford University and then uh, go back to Egypt and teach in uh, Cairo University. But you ended up not pursuing that PhD fully at Stanford. Talk to me about what happened there. Yeah, so I frequently uh, joke and say that uh, Stanford uh, corrupted me. (laughs) Forget about this noble teaching thing. Rather, let's focus on uh, entrepreneurship and creating companies. Did you think that you were going to start your own company before you came to the U.S.? Yeah, so I mean, I think that goes back to uh, what makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur, which is not an easy question to answer at all. But... One of the core attributes of an entrepreneur is their risk-taking. They're willing to take risks. They're willing to throw away everything to try and realize a grand idea and make that grand idea come to fruition. Startups have a very low success rate in general. Like uh, startups, only one out of 10 do well. Only one out of 1,000 will go public and and be a multi-billion dollar company. And only one out of 10 thousand or a hundred thousand become as big as a Google or Facebook. So risk-taking is a very, very key ingredient. And I think immigrants in general have that risk-taking behavior. 51% of the $1 billion plus startups have at least one immigrant founder. It's because of that. It's because they're way more willing to take risk. And you were eligible for a J-1 visa? Yes, yes. Which allowed you to stay and work here in the U.S.? Exactly. So I came on a J-1 educational visa. That's the visa I came in. And J-1 has two types. Luckily, I had a type that does not require you to go back. There is a type of J-1 visa that once you finish, you have to go back to your home country for two years before you can come back to the U.S. Luckily, I did not have that one with the restriction. And it was during that period of work where I was able to start my first company, actually, that Yahoo acquired. And then Yahoo continued to pursue my H-1 visa and then eventually my green card when I was at Yahoo. And then I got my passport and became a U.S. citizen at Cloudera. So do you think without that visa program, where do you think you'd be today? I'd be back in Egypt and teaching. (laughs) (laughs) And not to pipe up and make Cloudera sound much bigger than it really is, but Cloudera is doing very well as a company. So we are now publicly listed. We just had an IPO a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We have a multi-billion dollar valuation that people can go check on the stock markets. And more importantly, I'm proud of the impact we have. So at Cloudera, we have about 1,600 people that work at Cloudera. So we created 1,600 jobs. But more importantly, we created a very large ecosystem around Cloudera. So Cloudera itself, 1,600 people, but there is a big ecosystem that we created that has hundreds of thousands of jobs around us. And it all came to be because of this small company that started just nine years ago. And right now we have a president who's pursuing several policies that could be deemed as anti-immigrant, that could make it so that it's harder or less attractive for immigrants to come to the U.S. What was your initial reaction to some of his stances on immigration? What made this country great and made this country evolve so quickly within the last 300 years compared to other countries that exist for eons and eons before that was their diversity, their willingness to bring the best minds from across the world to come work here and innovate and create amazing technologies. Of course, I don't agree with his views. And I think they will be detrimental to the country, both in the short term, in terms of the fabric of what makes this country hold together, but in the long term, in terms of the economic impact that this country can have. Were you surprised that Trump was elected in the first place? I, I can safely say that all of my immigrant friends, and I have and many U.S. friends here in the, in the Bay Area as well, none of us saw this coming. I mean, we were all very, very surprised, obviously, because at uh, the Bay Area, California at large, California is the biggest uh, U.S. state, right? 40 million population and the, the biggest in terms of the economic impact as well. 
California has a much higher fraction of immigrants than many of the other states. And yeah, of course, we were all shocked when this happened. One of our efforts with this project is to talk to people in all different places outside of the coast. So we were recently in Northwest Arkansas, and we talked to Susie Maggie. She's a clerk at a sleep number store in Rogers, Arkansas. And she had a very different reaction to Trump's election and and his immigration policies to date. And I do think we have to trust our leaders. And I think it will work out. You just have to take one day at a time. And I think we just have to just really listen to what's going on in the world. And just remember that it's what's right for what's going on. That we want to keep America safe. And we just have to really remember that it's about the long haul. It's about what's going on for the long haul. And sometimes we don't know everything that's going on. And sometimes we think we know it all, but we really don't. I think sometimes we just have to remember that it's still about what's good for the whole and not what's good for just one. So what she's saying here is that she wants America to trust the president. She feels like there are matters of safety and national security that may relate to immigration uh, that she has questions about that kind of are underneath what she's saying here. So what do you make of this chasm, the split that we're seeing between how the middle of the country views immigrants and how you know immigrants are viewed on the coast and within the tech community? So, I mean, I, I also happen to be actually in a special class of immigrants as I'm, I'm an immigrant from a Muslim majority country. So I come from Egypt. Egypt is about 85% to 90% Muslim. Uh, luckily, it's not one of the banned countries yet, but it can always be added. Uh, so I agree with the statement that she made that we should be thinking about the whole, not about the pieces. Uh, but that is where the argument stops. Because after that, if you look at the views and some of the changes that are being introduced, they are targeting certain pieces, right? So when you, when you target Muslims or Muslim immigrants as a category, there is no question there is some crazy Muslims. I think there is no question there is also some crazy Christians. I think there is no question there is some crazy atheists. I mean, crazy people exist everywhere. And it's wrong to take a sample of 0.0001% of a population and then generalize that to 1 billion Muslims, 3 billion Christians, or whatever. That is wrong. Because for every crazy Muslim that did something awful, there is a a thousand, if not more, that did something great like myself. If the current mood that exists around immigration continues, do you see the U.S. tech industry being moving forward? Do you feel like it's in jeopardy right now, the magic of Silicon Valley? No, I don't think it's in jeopardy right now. I mean, we see all of the attempts of the government to change immigration rules or change, um, create these lists of countries that can't come and can come and so on. That All of the Silicon Valley companies just stand up united against things like that because they know that for them to succeed and for innovation to continue to grow in the future, they need the best and sharpest minds, period, period. And that's what made the U.S. great, is that. Since the beginning, they were willing to take in the best and sharpest minds, period. So there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that implementing a strong immigration policy that prevents smart immigrants from coming in will be detrimental to this country in the long term. No doubts. Could you talk a little bit more about that? President Trump is cracking down on the H-1B program in the U.S. How does Cloudera utilize that program currently And what is at risk if Trump continues to pursue policies against it so aggressively? What impact is that going to have on tech as a whole? 
we will hire the smartest minds from the US if they are in the US, but they are not. That's the whole point. That's what we are saying. That's what Google is saying. That's what Apple is saying. Microsoft, Amazon, all of us are, are telling the US government is trust us. We are hiring every single smart mind we can find. <laughs> and the US just doesn't have enough of them. It does not. It's just the competition is insane and there is not enough supply. There isn't enough supply in the country. So we will fight politely. We will fight very, very hard to our last breath to make sure that we can continue to have access to the smartest minds because we know that that's what will make us succeed or fail. I will speculate, I'm not saying I would do this myself, but I will speculate that if the US government was to continue to push very hard on that, these companies will move somewhere else. We will go to France, which now is saying they are willing to accept immigrants <laughs> and willing to accept the smartest minds to come in. We will go to Singapore, which has the same kind of uh, mentality. So I'm not saying I will do that personally, but I think we collectively would do that. We would be forced to do that because we would know we will not succeed without these minds. Does this come up at Cloudera? Talk a little bit about just how you use H-1B visas. And for instance, I mean, have you talked with your co-founders or with other people, with other executives within the company of maybe shifting some of this hiring to these other places if it does become more difficult to get those workers here? Every single company in the Silicon Valley now has, especially that once they cross the 400, 600 employees, they start opening R&D offices outside of the U.S., Exactly for that. So Canada, of, of course, is a very natural place to do that. But at Claudera, we chose to do that in uh, Budapest, in Hungary, about two years ago. Because the H-1B supply is not big enough and we couldn't hire at the rate that we would like, and because of the salaries of the engineers just becoming insanely expensive, not just in California, but in the US at large, because of the rare, you can't find them. It's not like they, it's, whenever you have a rare resource and the, the demand is way bigger than the supply, that's what happens. And if you look at Google, they're doing the same thing. If you look at Amazon, doing the same thing. Microsoft, doing the same thing. And so it's happening already. And if we were to go and impose limits on H-1Bs furthermore, it will happen at a much faster rate. And eventually, the core of the company will not be here in the U.S. And that's where the U.S. will start to fall behind. But to play devil's advocate a little bit here, what you're talking about is creating job opportunities in countries outside of the U.S., which is exactly the reason why Trump supporters feel there needs to be policies in place to keep these jobs in America. As the founder of an American-based company, do you feel any obligation to create jobs here in the U.S.? I mean, definitely our preference would be to hire people closer to each other, right? So our first preference always is to hire here. If you look at the Claudera's history, we started here in uh, the Bay Area in 2008. Engineering-wise, we only started opening another office in uh, Austin, Texas. was about four years after that. A year after that, we did North Carolina. And then it started hitting us of how hard it is to find talent in, in all of these places. And we just couldn't find the talent. It's, it's not about the, the, how much we're paying for the talent. We, we, we were paying for the talent. We, just, we couldn't find it. The competition is so high right now on smart tech people. And our hand was forced to make this change, not because of uh, cost, but because of uh, availability of the people. And is that the biggest problem that you think tech companies and others who are hiring knowledge workers will face in the foreseeable future? I have a bigger problem, which is the job dynamic will change significantly in the next 10 to 20 years because we are building systems now that will be able to do human jobs. I'll give you a very concrete example. JP Morgan is one of our largest customers at Cloudera. JP Morgan built a system using our software that analyzed the legal contracts that uh, JP Morgan did with their partners over the last many, many years. And now they are able to replace 400,000 lawyer hours with machines. The machines review the contracts, they rewrite the contracts, the lawyer only needs to come in at the end just to approve the changes, which also means you need a lot less lawyers 
when that happens. And the implications of that, in my mind, are a lot more significant than us worrying about immigration and hiring tech mines here or there. A lot of our decisions, like a lawyer changing a sentence in a, in a document, will be automated. And we will need to learn to evolve our intellectual ability to solve much higher level problems and evolve our ability to learn new skills. A lawyer might need to learn how to shift to be a doctor. I know it sounds very hard to do, but they will need to have the ability. The most important aspect of your life going forward will be your capacity to learn and evolve. If you don't have that, you will still have a job, but it's not going to be a very high paying job. In that worldview, then, given that's where the trends are going, immigration becomes even more critical, right? Because if we're already talking about a tech talent crunch here in the U.S. with the current skills gaps that we're facing, in the future, there are just going to be fewer people who are able to adapt and, as you say, learn. So exactly. doesn't that make immigration an even more critical Absolutely. issue? Absolutely. 100%. That's a very good conclusion to make. We like to look at our, all of ourselves uh, having the same intellectual ability, but we don't. There are some people that have much higher IQ than other people, some people that have much higher EQ than other people. EQ is very important for a lot of jobs as well, emotional quotient uh, versus intelligent quotient. And there is a certain percentage of these people that exist in the world that are at that level. And some of them will be here in the U.S., but many of them will not be. And if the U.S. wants to stay on top of their game, they will need to be able to access these people. That's what you need to do to win. And to take that away, you will lose. You will fall behind. But I can imagine someone in the middle of the country right now, maybe who has already lost their job due to automation in the manufacturing industry, being exhausted by mm -hmm. the conversation that we're having right now. I mean, they already are out of work, and you're saying the situation is getting worse. So what do we do as a country to revive concepts like the American dream, the ability to use the talent that you have to make a living for your family? Is that slipping away? That is not slipping away, but the key advice that they, that they need to live by and they need to evolve into is what I just said earlier. They need to learn to change what they're doing much quicker than ever before. And that's what we need to go. So these people complaining about losing their jobs, uh, number one, they should stop complaining. Number two, they should look for solutions that they can do themselves to make themselves fit in the world that we're in. And then we as governments need to move towards recognizing that there needs to be basic income that people get. There will be a point where we, certain people will not be able to get jobs. It will happen. I have no doubts about it. And the only solution for that is to have basic income. There is basic income that the country collectively pays back. As companies like Google and ourselves and others make tons of money, we pay that money back in taxes. These taxes, some of it should go back as basic income salaries that go to people, period. Because we need these people to have money to buy our products so we can make more money and give it back to the government and otherwise the cycle collapses. We actually explored universal basic income in a previous episode of Work in Progress. Oh, nice. And largely what we heard from workers across the country is that they shunned the idea. And the idea that the government is just going to write them a check is something that didn't really resonate with them. Yeah. So when you say things like they need to stop complaining and yes, the government needs to provide universal basic income, isn't that a pretty privileged response to how these people are feeling. What role does either the government or the private sector play in giving them solutions so that they can stop complaining? There is the right way and the wrong way. The wrong way is to say, we are going to stop innovation. We're going to stop doing this in the U.S. so that people can keep their jobs. And then China figures out AI before us, and China becomes the leader of the world. That's what's going to happen. There's no doubts about it. 
So if you're looking at strategically 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, that's how you need to be thinking. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't uh, sympathize with these people. I absolutely sympathize with them. And that's why I'm saying there should be basic income. Because they're only going to have two choices in the future. You're only going to have two choices. Either you're smart enough to adapt and find a job and find a purpose that keeps you engaged, or you're going to get basic income. There won't be a third choice. But you mentioned lawyers, for instance, and being able to transition to doctors. I mean, becoming a doctor is like an eight-year process. So being able to shift like that is actually really complicated and, and not something people could just do on the fly. So how do you see people doing that? And what are some other professions like that that we maybe don't talk about as much that you think should we get ready to start transitioning to something else? The example I gave of lawyer to doctor, that was just like a figure of speech. I mean, that the key point is we need to change our educational systems. Our educational systems are built right now to be from your young, you're going through this very long process of 20 years to specialize in one thing. That needs to be flipped on his head. Going forward in the future, our educational process for us to continue to be the leaders of this world needs to be about how we build people that are able to learn and adapt as quickly as they can across many, many disciplines. That's what we need. I want to get back to this idea of the American dream. A lot of this conversation has been focused on how much things are changing. But in Chip and I's travels across the country, we spoke to a lot of people who instead say what makes America, America are our traditions. We spoke with Linda Mills, who is a clerk at a Hallmark store in Rogers, Arkansas. And she had this to say about where we are with the American dream right now. I think it's leaving us. I think we need to get it back. We just need to relook at a lot of things from years past and, and know that we need to get back with it. I mean, it's, it's, I'm afraid we're just losing it, you know, we, losing that dream of, of America. So. And, and why is that? What do, you, what, do you, what do you think is part of, why do you feel like we're losing it? I think uh, we're just not getting back to, to traditions and things. Um, I think that we're just kind of getting away from a lot of that. So I think you just need to get back with all the traditions and things that we've had from years past. Is, is there a certain, any tradition that stands out? Oh, just like the Pledge of Allegiance in the schools and just things like that, that, you know, you want to, to keep America going, you know. So really what Linda told us is that what makes America, America is not change, but tradition. What is your response to that in her thinking that the American dream really resides on what our values are and what the core of the American experience has been as opposed to what it could be? I actually, I agree with her. I mean, what makes America great and what made it happen for me, I mean, I, I am living the American dream, is uh, the great constitution on which this country is built, right? This country of immigrants is built, which is part of the constitution of this country. <laughs> now, that said, I think it's a false assumption to think that you are going to live the American dream without working as your butt off to achieve the dream. And that's what I'm seeing happening. And I'm not saying it happened with this specific speaker here. Uh, hopefully that was not the case with her. As we said earlier, I think the uh, US population is what, 300 million people or, or maybe a little bit more than that. There's no way to expect that every one of these 300 people is gonna have the grit, is gonna have the intellectual abilities and the emotional quotient ability to, to, to achieve the American dream. And that's what we need to realize. Uh, when America only had uh, 10 million people, 20 million people, up to maybe 100 million people, the probability was higher that you can achieve that. 
But uh, going forward, no, not everybody is going to achieve that dream. To achieve that dream, you need to have two things. You need to have the proper structure in the country itself. But in Egypt, where I come from, uh, to succeed, sometimes you need to uh, have connections. You need to know the right people, and they need to help you and push you. No, here, you don't need to have connections. Here, if you're good, and you work hard, and you're lucky, luck is important, you will succeed. Right? That's what the, the first ingredients that you need to have for you to achieve the American dream. So the U.S. still has that. That has not changed, thank God, and let's make sure that continues to be the case. And then the second part, component, is it needs to come from you. You need to have the, the grit. You need to have the impatience. You need to have the work ethic, the intelligence that pushes you forward to achieve that dream. If you don't have these two, then you're not going to achieve the American dream. I'm sorry. Well, Amr, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. That was Cloudera co-founder and CTO Amr Awadallah talking to us about the role immigrants play in making America, America. Chip, do you think Amr is right in his declaration that the American dream now more than ever really only belongs to people who are willing to work extremely hard? I mean, he's not wrong. That sentiment that hard work is necessary is, of course, true, but it's only part of this whole equation. Uh, We talk to people all the time who say that they're working as hard as they know how. They're doing everything they can to get a job or pay off debt or figure out how to change careers, and they just can't do it. Or they want to move somewhere else where the jobs are, and, and that's a struggle on its own. So I think that, yes, ambition is important and hard work is important, but there are other factors at play here, too, that we have to talk about. Yeah, and I think I picked up on that disconnect, too, when we were talking to Amr, when he was saying things like, workers need to stop complaining, I can't help but pause and say, well, they probably have a reason to be complaining in the first place. There are factors at play that are outside of their control. Surely hard work can get you so far, but then what happens? If the jobs aren't there, if you are not adequately prepared to have the skills for the jobs that are in place, what then? What do you do now? Right. And it was really striking that Amr was very blunt in his message that people need to stop complaining and get to work. But people who are out of work say that they are doing that. They're trying everything they know how. I spoke with Josephine Sabillon. She's a project manager in the oil and gas industry who lives near Pittsburgh. It's an area that was really part of the nation's shale boom a couple years ago. She lost her job in late August and has been networking and applying ever since. But in that nine-month span, she's had only one interview. So, And she even went back to school. She spent $1,000 to get a project management certificate, and she finished a degree in construction management, and she still isn't having success. Maybe I'm not. I'm meant to go in a different direction because, you know, what's the definition of insanity? You keep doing the same thing over and over again and, you know, the same way and expecting a different result. It's not happening. And I've, I have tried to vary my approach, and it hasn't happened. So maybe this is a message I need to go in a different direction. Maybe this is just um, a representation of of where we are within that particular industry. And, you know, it just reinforces that maybe I need to go in a different direction. I'm, I'm honestly out of answers. So what she's saying is that she's thinking of switching fields entirely or going into general construction, for instance, as a junior project manager, a field she doesn't really have experience in, but she feels like she has to try something different. And what this conversation is getting back to is the same thing that we were talking to Amr about, about just how essential this idea of reskilling and retraining is going to be for the American workforce moving forward. But when I hear Josephine talk to us, 
I can't help but think, okay, what if she switches jobs to that next field and then those jobs go away? Is she supposed to spend another $45,000 in her education? It seems to me that the jobs are moving at a quicker pace than the education system in our country right now, which is exactly the problem that we're hearing, not just from Amr and from Josephine, but from multiple people that we talk to. A lot of people that we've spoken with say that they feel the American dream feels farther and farther away, that it's just too hard to achieve. It's not dead, but it just is out of grasp. And that's exactly what Josephine told me. I would say that, yes, the American dream looks more elusive to people right now in the current job space. And what's terrifying is that workers like Josephine think the American dream looks elusive now, but per our conversation with Amr, this is only going to get worse. With automation threatening to reduce the number of jobs required, that just means that it's going to get harder and harder to snag the positions that remain. And what that means for the immigration debate is that we're going to have to look outside for talent more than we are right now. I think what's clear, though, is that before that happens, both the public and private sector need to get on the same page about how we're going to get the American workforce prepared and ready to work through that change. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please feel free to rate and review our show on iTunes or Google Play. And we'd love for you to share your thoughts on the podcast and the issues we discussed here today on LinkedIn using hashtag work in progress. Chip and I are on LinkedIn all day looking for people to include in this podcast. So if you have an interesting perspective, we want to hear it. You can find me on LinkedIn at Caroline Fairchild and Twitter at CFair1. And to follow Chip Cutter in his travels, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well at Chip Cutter. This week's show is produced by Florencia Ariando and David Pond. We'll see you again soon.